Hello and welcome to episode 29 of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. So a couple of little bits of admin to do before I start uh, today's episode, which is the second part of my conversation with John Curlander. Uh, first of all, I want to thank everybody who has bought a mug. Um, thank you for supporting uh, what I'm doing. It's that that classic thing of a. Uh, you may have seen it on social media when you see like a a sign and it says uh, when you buy from a local business, you are paying for a little girl's ballet lessons. Well, quite literally, that is kind of what is going on here. I mean, you'd fund in the podcast really because that costs money, but essentially, I do have to pay for my daughter's ballet lessons <laughs> because she enjoys ballet and uh, she needs to do that. <laughs> so there we go. Um, so yes, thank you to everybody who's bought a mug. Um, if you would like to buy one, you can go to my website, allyouneedisdrums.com, uh, and then click on shop, and the mugs are there, and there is uh, free shipping worldwide, so wherever you are in the world, I will cover the shipping uh, inclusive in the price. Uh, secondly, I have taken the fairly large and bold decision to make this podcast weekly, I found myself in a position where I have three interviews that were all are all two parters backed up, and I thought, you know, if it, if I'm doing two parters routinely, then that's only twelve guests a year, and twenty four guests a year is obviously a, a large amount of guests <laughs> um, to keep the quality high. But I'm up for that challenge, and I've got three. Uh, after this episode three coming up that are really special and I've got more booked in this week so I, I think the only fair thing to do is to put it out weekly so that you guys can uh, can hear them faster <laughs> and not have to wait two weeks for all these conversations so there we go we'll, we'll see how it goes you, at least you know for the next sort of two or three months there'll at least be one every week and then if I start flapping and panicking <laughs> then I'll go back to doing it once a fortnight but for now I'm up for the challenge of weekly so let's see how that goes. So there will be an episode next week dropping. And I'll tell you more about that at the end of this episode. So there we have it. Um, there's been lots of great feedback about this episode. You guys have really enjoyed it. So uh, we'll just get straight back in. My second part of my conversation with John Curlander. Um, so I, I'm interested about the particular time at EMI that um you know Jeff Emmerich is kind of known for pushing some of the boundaries of the way that they sort of allocated mic setups and that kind of stuff and um obviously with Abbey Roads they'd just taken delivery of this new TG desk um what was it like for you learning from or watching Jeff Emmerich working and also around that same time was did it feel like things were changing? You know, gear was being upgraded and systems were perhaps being relaxed a little. Yes, I mean, you know, basically, you know, if if you were working on the Beatles sessions, you could, you know, no one was going to come in and tell you what to do. Okay. <laughs> except the Beatles. <laughs> um, and so, you know, there was this new board that sounded completely sounded completely different and you know to get technical for a little bit it produced transients that um were much greater and sharper than the valve desks which meant that the way it came back off tape was completely different and then halfway through abbey road we started on four track which were the studer J37s. Mm -hmm. We went to <clears throat> the 3M's 8-track, which also, so the, you've got a combination of a new board with more transients and different tape machines that, and tape formulas that would uh, change the sound because back in those days, you, you had this thing called line in, line out, which was basically what you put in um, if, to the tape and what came back and what came back from the tape could be quite different. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, Jeff would just put his fingers on the EQ or the compressor and not even like look at the knobs. That's, that's one of the things that's so different now, like with people working on Pro Tools and looking 
at the screen of what it's doing. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. catch myself doing it <laughs> as well. And you say, don't do that, don't do that. Don't look at it, listen to it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, it, was, it was basically um, a great experience. And um, it, it raises the question of did, did Jeff or I know, or George, did any of us know that this was their last album? Mm. Uh, I suspected it was, but I didn't know for sure. No one really knew. So I think Jeff saw it as we're just going to make something with a combination of maybe it's the last album and the combination that um, it's a solid state desk, which was completely new to, to everybody, not just to us, and new tape machines that had eight tracks instead of four, uh, just make it sound fresh. And, and also it was the first album, the only album, that had been conceived in stereo. Oh, yeah. I'd, I, again, another thing I hadn't really thought about. I mean, yeah, obviously previously everything had been mono. So you've got all these, all these sounds changing. I mean, how did that affect, uh, did it affect your workflow, having new tape machines and a new desk to, you know, where you mentioned Jeff not looking um, at the knobs when he was EQing things, but presumably on a, on a new desk, there was a, a period of time where you had to learn what was going on. They, yeah, now they were fairly um, easy to understand. I mean, it was fairly basic at the time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Jeff would always just, as I said, do things just by listening. And um, he, you know, he wasn't uh, afraid to try different miking things, um, which made it so interesting to, to watch him do it. How do you think um, what you watched from Jeff informed what you went on to do? Um, you know, so obviously you worked on some of the the solo albums. Um, you you were you know mixed uh, were involved in the mixing of of McCartney one yeah. and lots of other things. Do you do you um, could you put into words? Do you think you could put into words what you learned from that sort of period of time at Abbey Road that when you kind of spread your wings and, and stepped up that what, what kind of you, you took from it? Um, yes, pretty strongly, actually. The, the, the main thing, um, all right, let, let's work backwards. <clears throat> I, there's a big thing in the last five, six, seven years longer of um, going backwards, like let's get a valve um, mixer. Let's get valve microphones and get the equipment that they used in the 50s or 60s. And this mic, you know, wonderful mics, and they sound so great, but people are going backwards. The the main thing I took away from uh, the Beatles sessions is that they never never did that, especially on Abbey Road with this new desk. Nobody ever said, could we get the guitar sound that we used on Revolver? And how did we get that? No, they weren't, they weren't interested. No one ever went backwards. And it would be, why don't we get a guitar sound or invent a sound that's never been done before, <laughs> right? And we don't care how you do it or can, like there'd be this whole thing, a famous story about automatic double tracking, mm-hmm. you know, that, that for quite a lot of their records, the vocals were double tracked. And John Lennon said once, it's so time consuming to perfectly double track something. Can't you invent a machine that does it automatically? Which, you know, Ken Townsend went ahead and invented this thing that did it. <laughs> yeah. And we invented other bits of gear like an interface of how to, um, you know, on on a Hammond organ, it'd be hooked up to a Leslie speaker, which revolves. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to get a guitar to go into that speaker, which required a a new box that didn't exist because it was just a hardwire connection from the organ. Mm 
Mm -hmm. So our technical department built a, an interface box that you could plug a guitar or a mic that you could do vocals into a Leslie speaker, which <laughs> hadn't been done before. So it was all stuff moving forward and breaking new paths. And, and that is something from that early age that I never, ever forgot. And I'm sometimes skeptical, you know, like people say, oh, you know, why don't we get that kind of 60s sound? And I, I got to say, well, because first of all, you don't have everything in the chain. You're never going to have everything exactly the same. Also, you're not writing 60s music <laughs> and you're not selling it to teenagers in the 60s. Yeah. No, so just forget about it, get over it and write something new and record something new. I I love that. I mean something that that comes up a lot in the the interviews I've read of yours is your willingness to embrace what's happening with technology. I mean even just when we started this interview we were talking about the M1 the new M1 chip in uh, yes, right. you know and uh that's I I think that's probably something uh that people will be surprised to hear. Um you know that you Am I correct in thinking that when you first moved to LA, you were one of the first users of the Pro Tools setup? And yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, um, the the people here in LA are very, very um, stuck in their analog ways, <laughs> and in every respect, and much more so than Europe, um, and. Um, we had at the time there was uh, Pro Tools that had a, a capability of eight channels, and it was being when I moved here, it was being used for mixing. Okay. So uh, things would be recorded either on a twenty-four track or a forty-eight track, mm -hmm. and then they would mix down to Pro Tools in eight track. And we had a very close relationship with a guy called Tom Graham, who was the, the, the local Pro Tools service rep. And I was working with a composer, David Newman at the time. And I said, well, what about taking it beyond 8-track? Do you think we could ever get, uh, get it big enough? And it was the same time that they were coming up with new interfaces and stuff. Mm -hmm. He said, theoretically, yes. Practically, I don't know. So what we said to him was, if we tried a session, say, for instance, 24 tracks of Pro Tools, I understand it, it could be a risk. What if we back it up with an analog or a tape version as a, as a backup, but would you come along and operate it to, so it would minimize the risks of it going wrong. So he agreed and, and um, uh, Av it wasn't Avid then, it was DigiDesign, mm -hmm. um, gave him the time to come and, because they saw it as a good experiment. Yeah. And so I think the first film that we did, I can't remember which one it was, but we, we pushed it up to 24 tracks at the same time as backing it up on tape. Yeah. And then, you know, it went on from there. So yeah, I think, you know, uh, I think that that old Beatles thing have just moved it forward all the time. They'd have been happy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that that's been um, perhaps one of the, the reasons for how you've managed to sustain such a long and successful career? I mean, you've, you've arguably stayed at the, almost the pinnacle of, of what you've been doing for, I mean, even now. And do you think that your willingness to accept new technology is, is something that's informed that? Yes, absolutely. Um, there, there was a, a, another story that kind of stuck with me uh, for a long time was in the, um, the late 70s, I think it was either 78 or 79, where uh, EMI um, at Hayes had invented a digital mixer in 78. <laughs> 
right? <laughs> yeah. And we set it up as a prototype and we were recording it on, I think, a Honeywell um, data recorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were doing tests, uh, classical tests, uh, in a parallel control room. And I, uh, God knows what it was. Maybe it was 8-bit. Wow. Uh, it was just stereo, <laughs> but it was maybe 8-bit. God knows what it was. I don't remember. Yeah. Uh, um, the the guy from uh, EMI's research came along. He he invented this and built this desk. And the senior classical engineer at the time was uh, co-engineering this session. And, uh, and we had mics out that were paralleled to the main recording in Studio One to this other room where we were testing this mixer and digital recorder. And the chief engineer, classical engineer of Abbey Road said, well, it, compared to the analog, it just doesn't sound any good. <laughs> you know, which, you know, like a hush fell on the room. <laughs> and the guy from EMI's research, who was very tall, who was a big guy and maybe six foot six tall, so looked down on the engineer and said, it's not that it doesn't sound good. It's that you don't know how to use it. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and, and I'm still fairly junior at the time. And I'm kind of, my oh God, this is, you know, it's a real showdown here. And then he went on to explain why you don't have, he said, you can't, you, what, he said, what you've done is you've taken your ordinary mics that are on the orchestra and you've paralleled them and you've chosen those mics and you've positioned them where it would be the right place for an analog recording, which is what you know. Mm-hmm. He said, you can't do that. Right? This digital gear has great advantages and at the moment it has its drawbacks, but you have to work with it, right? And the next test we do you have to put out a separate set of mics that are optimized and positioned for the equipment that is signal chain that it's going to go into. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. It makes complete and, sense. And it, that lived me, with me also for a long time. And I remember some early sessions here in Los Angeles where we were using recording an eight into an ADAT. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember ADAT. I, I, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm not old enough to have ever used one, but I, mean, I, I know of them, yeah. I think at that time they were up to 16 bit and they did, you know, they, they didn't sound that great. <laughs> and everyone says, oh, you know, if you, if you compare AB, line in, line out, to an ADAT, it really degrades the sound. Mm-hmm. And I thought, and I said, well, I know the way around this. And that is never listen to the input because <laughs> the difference between the input and the output is something that you can't do anything about. Yes. Yeah. So whatever it is, it's going to change it. So if you don't listen to the input, you'll never know what it would have been and just go with the output of the ADAR and then work with the microphones and the positioning to modify the sound to something that you like. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> it's com- it sounds like common sense, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the whole thing is common sense. The whole, the whole thing is common sense. I think, but, um, oh, well, I was going to, I mean, it's on the, on the, along the same lines. I know that I almost know what, almost think I know what you're going to say before I ask the question. But with that in mind, when you're working on, you know, say like a big orchestra or a film score or something, do you have a set, um, do you have some set routines that you do? Or is it, do you just work with what is presented with you in, in different situations? Um, I, I basically, I basically have two methods. Okay. Uh, one is if I've done something that worked out very well and 
we come back and like, let's say it's so-and-so two or so-and-so three, uh, which is a continuation over several projects or several games or several films. Yeah, so we're talking, yeah, we're talking sort of fil film and um, yes. movie, movies and things. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, like touching on a, the trilogy of Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. we would do a setup that was completely identical over a production time of four years. And the setup for the third film was identical in every single way to the first one. Mm -hmm. And I would, it would just be a case again, of writing the notes down and like basically doing a total recall of everything, of, of all the parameters in the room, all the microphones, all the chairs, all the, what people had for breakfast. <laughs> um, and just, this is the same thing again. And then the other method I have is, okay, this is a new project um, they want, like the Beatles and they want a new sound. I'm just going to invent something new, totally new. And I, I was doing this once uh, and there was a, uh, on a video game and they were, they had a film crew from China following me around, <laughs> like watching everything that I, you know, and they were going, you know, why are you putting this microphone here? And it happened to be one of the things where I'm being creative for a new setup. And I said, to be honest with you, I'm just making it up as I go along, <laughs> you know? And so um, that, but then if you do that and they love it, and then they say, well, we need to come back for the sequel or the next thing, I'll pro I will probably just get out the notes and do the same thing because it's, lo it's like locked in and it, it's created. And, yeah, I, I would quite often, and do even now, lock in certain setups and certain sounds for certain artists. And if it works for them, uh, stick with it until they would say, like the Beatles did, no, let's do something completely new. Mm -hmm. Were you, uh, through your time at Abbey Road, presumably you were at recording orchestras so you have, you know, you built experience. You know, I know um, just from the, the the times I've been there, speaking to the engineers there, that you know they could be doing a, a sort of rock and pop session one day, and then the next day recording a film soundtrack. It really is that varied, and it's a, mm. it's you know, you're so you were gaining experience that was going to benefit you um, in every in, area. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um. Do you? I've I, I've read this story of you recording a ninety-piece orchestra at twenty-three, <laughs> and that scares the living daylights out of me. I mean, I can't even wrap my head around the practicalities of of miking up a ninety-piece. You know, a, not even ninety-piece, even half that. I can't can't wrap my head around the practicalities of it. I mean, how does in terms of you know almost get, taking it back round to the beginning and you know you're you as a balance engineer. How how does that work? Um, now I'm happy for you to to be a bit nerdy, but not you know you can you can sort of sum well, some points that, together. That, that example of me of the first orchestral session that I did with 93, 90 piece orchestra and age twenty three mm. was the engine that was up in Liverpool actually the Liverpool Philharmonic. Okay, and the engineer Stuart Elton, who normally did Liverpool, I was working with him when he said. I can't go this time. Do you want to do it? And I said, but Stuart, that's lovely compliment to pay me, but I've never done it. Um, so he said, look, write this down. And I got out like a small notepad, actually no bigger than a post-it. And he gave me, and I filled up this post-it thing with notes that he gave me. And he said, so listen, I've been up to Liverpool countless times. This will work. Just do what I tell you and don't get cocky and don't start trying stuff. <laughs> so I went up to Liverpool with the um, Abbey Road mobile unit and my little post-it thing. <laughs> uh, 
which basically had Stuart set up on it. And I thought, yeah, this is, you know, I asked the producer, um, a very, very nice man called John Willen. I said, how do you feel about this? Because um, I haven't done it before. And, you know, you're the producer in charge. And he said, look, personally, I don't mind if you completely screw it up. I just don't want you to feel bad, <laughs> you know. And I, which he, which was a lie. I mean, obviously, he didn't want me to screw it up. But so basically, I thought, okay, this is a big opportunity and a big uh, responsibility. I'm just going to do Stuart's setup. I've seen his setup uh, so many times, and I knew with together with the notes how to do it. And there was no at that point there was no temptation to deviate from it in any way mm -hmm. it was like a bit like going back to the other story it was a bit like phil Spector's formula yes you know, yeah you know when in doubt stick to the formula that's it do you had you um begun to to form any preferences in your head about where you were hoping that your career might take you at that point or were you just sort of along along no. for the ride Yes, absolutely. Just make it up as you go along. <laughs> I'm, I'm, know, so, I'm interested so, in how you ended up in LA and, and sort of, you know, arguably now you're, you're renowned for, you know, obviously what you've uh, done, you um, know, a Grammy award-winning for, I, for I, I the Lord of the Rings. After the Beatles, um, there, in the seventies, there was a, a bit of an exodus in England. You know, we had a lull in the early seventies of, original music and there were a lot of people that I was working with in the mid 70s um, that um, that had moved from London to LA so I, I like growing up and thinking maybe one day I would I would do this um, and it took it you know I I stayed at Abbey Road for almost let's say, just a couple of months short of three, uh, 30 years. Wow. Um, and then finally decided to, um, to try it out. And it, it was quite a shock because it, it, it's, uh, it was so different here that it wasn't nearly as easy as I thought it was going to be. Mm, interesting. Um, and it, you know, it came with a, a lot of apprehension and um, frankly, fear mm -hmm. that I'd made the wrong choice. Um, but the option, the other option, you know, at the time I was chief recording engineer, we didn't use balance engineer anymore. <laughs> um, I was chief recording engineer of Abbey Road. Where do you go from there? Yeah, well, yes. You know, so just like jump off the cliff and do something something different um, and um, may, maybe it you know maybe it was that having achieved many personal goals in the 30 years at Abbey Road it was literally time to uh, try something else I mean what one of the things that was actually a compliment that I haven't spoken about much is that I was actually replaced by two people. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, that... one, was, one was a pop engineer and one was a classical engineer. Well, that, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, that's a, um, yeah, that's a huge compliment. <laughs> and I suppose, you know, and I, I, you know, I also gave them one year's notice. So it wasn't like I um, just walked out. Yeah. Um, but I thought that was quite a compliment, really. <laughs> do you do you have a preference now about you know what you like doing best, or do you do you still like variety? Oh no, I still like variety. <laughs> um, um, you know, I'm right now I'm still doing uh, films, um, a lot of video games, which is um, video games I find really interesting because it, it's kind of 
almost, I think, halfway between um, the, the record, you know, the music business mm. and the film business. It's not, um, one of the things I find, you know, people are asking me, what's the difference between film music and video game music? Mm -hmm. And I th the easiest way I can describe it is that film music is music that you hear mostly. No, this is generalizing yeah, a yeah. lot, but it's music that you hear and it creates a, you know, a positive or negative um, emotional reaction. And, you know, the number of film scores that you could actually say, okay, so sing me this. So they'll probably sing you Star Wars and <laughs> yeah. something by John Williams, but not, you know, no one's going to sing you, you know, 32 bars of a drone. <laughs> and video game music is a little bit of that, but it's mostly music to listen to. Mm, yeah. And, you know, people um, listen to video game music partially because it's repeated on endless loops over and over and over and over again. But it needs to, it, like a good pop record, it needs to, to stand constant repetition. So I actually find that, well, it's the same, you know, doing a bit of this and a bit of that. It's so do you find when you're, this is, you know, just a, a personal interesting question uh, or from me. Um, so when you're mixing a, a video game and it has to, to stand up to constant repetition that you're, you're trying to put things in the mix that, that vary things as, as it goes through. So it's not a, it's not necessarily boring, you know, in terms of, that's such a horrible yeah. word. I hate that word, but you know, you're, you're trying to, to mix in a way that um, hold, hold somebody's attention throughout it like a pop tune would. Um, yes, pretty much. I mean, um, Last year, um, I mixed all the music for Ori and the Will of the Wisps, mm -hmm. which was uh, again, it's actually be, just been nominated for a BAFTA. Oh, wow. Um, and there was like three and a half hours of music, uh, mostly um, revolving around like three or four themes. So yes, there was a lot of repetition, and you know, when you when you're getting up there and you're mixing a, another cue of what is essentially the same theme, you you look at the at the game and think, okay, so let's throw in some variables here, mm -hmm. um, and because um, yes you can't literally do the same thing over and over because otherwise <laughs> it, it would just be a loop, or like yes. a loop. so um, just as you know the composer and the orchestrator would throw in some some variables I would throw some variables into the to the mixing it's it's really interesting I mean it's, a, a, it's something I don't know a huge amount about and um I guess it it tallies with the uh, you know with the theme of of you being progressive and, and wanting to work on new things. I mean, it's definitely an emerging market for sure. Um, do you have any any particular projects throughout? I mean, there's, there's probably so many that you could choose, but is there anything that you're personally really proud of from your career? Oh, that's you know that that's really really difficult. Um, because you obviously go to the ones that were the most successful. Yes. Um, of which there's know, so many to choose. <laughs> you there's, know. So many, there's so many things to choose from. I mean, you know, you go, you know, like sometimes, well, what have you done? And you go, well, the Beatles, Toto, Lord of the Rings, and say, World of Warcraft. <laughs> yeah. Right. What, and then what else do you want to know? <laughs> you know so but those are because they're the the biggest profile yes and you know a lot of the the other things that are less high profile <clears throat> you know unless i start looking it up on an old diary or something just completely forget about it 
-hmm. But um, I think that, um, you know, people say, um, you know, what were the best things that you enjoyed working on? And I think that the answer could either be ones where it was a, turned out to be a critical success mm -hmm. or the one that turned out to be a market success or the one that you that you had the best time in the control room with yes <laughs> and, and the people who were in the room with you and i think that those are the those are the, the ones in that category are the ones that have the best memories, whether or not it won an award or whether it uh, had big sales. Of course, yeah. Is there any that um, maybe creatively stand out as as uh, something you enjoyed doing? Um, I think just um, from a perverse, man, I like being perverse. <laughs> um, uh, well, you know, in the early eighties when I did hooked on classics. Mm -hmm. Right. And I was totally at the, the peak of my classical career. I'm working with some really, really high end um, classical musicians. Mm -hmm. And I remember one night, I mean, you, you're familiar with the hooked on classics. Yeah. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. Right. And uh, to, to those people who don't know, it was a collection of, um, of classical uh, favorites uh, put to a really, really um, uh, basic um, <laughs> naive drum beat, drum yeah. loop, actually. And uh, to the point at which it was like, it was completely drive you crazy. <laughs> um, and I was recording with uh, Ricardo Muti and the Berlin Philharmonic and after the recording, we went out for dinner to his favorite Italian restaurant. And while we were having dinner, Hooked on Classics came on the, <laughs> on the music system in the restaurant. And I was just like, just ignore it, don't say anything. And um, my, who I thought was my friend, the producer of the session, said, John, they're playing your hit record. <laughs> right? Which caught the ear of Ricardo, who like then like started to listen to it. And he looked at me and he gave me this like laser beam stare and said, You did this. <laughs> like total disgust. And there were about 14 people at the dinner table. And I did I really didn't know what to do, whether to, to kind of just fall into the floor <laughs> or what. So I thought, no, the only way out of this is to brave it through, you know? And I said, yeah, well, I did do this. And I believe it's done something like 15 million <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> and um, he, he like looks back and he goes, yeah, it has a very steady tempo. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that story. That's incredible. Yeah, which was a bit tit for tat. But, uh, <laughs> he wasn't gonna. That was the end of the conversation. <laughs> yeah, I bet it was. Fortunately, yeah. not the end of my career with him. But uh, no. But there was something, as I said, there was something a bit perverse about um, having worked with so many fantastic <laughs> classical people, just to find a way of uh, turning it into a hit record. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, uh, I mean, there's, I, I, I studied jazz and I, I'm quite, you know, that's sort of a, a lower passion of mine, but there's, you know, jazz equivalents of, of that kind of thing. And, you know, if they broaden the audience, there's, there's nothing, yeah. nothing too wrong with the, that. The one thing that I, that I really stand by in that whole concept of things, because people said, well, you know, it is literally boom, cack, boom, cack, boom, you know, and there's no, and they said, why didn't you put any drum fills or cymbal crashes or have a real drama mm -hmm. or anything? And I said, you're actually missing the point. <laughs> and, the, and the whole point, and this was something that uh, 
that I fought for the whole way through because I didn't want any variation to it at all. And I, at the time, the way I argued it was, this is like you're in your room and outside in the street is somebody drilling the road up with one of those jackhammer drills. And all day long, all you, it starts off, all you can hear is this constant drilling outside. And after about 10, 15 minutes, you don't even notice it anymore. Mm -hmm. It just, your, your, brain, your brain just blocks it out. So I said, if this drumbeat is absolutely so mind boggling boring, your brain after two minutes, hopefully, maybe five minutes, your brain will block it out. And what will happen is you start, your ear will go to the classical melodies and the harmonies. Uh, and for some reason, your foot will be tapping, but you don't really understand why. <laughs> Fascinating. It's, it's a, well, it's a really logical thought process, but yeah, it explains a lot. <laughs> yeah. And other people have, have kind of tried to copy it and gone a little bit jazzy or, you know, they've, they've made it more live sounding. Mm -hmm. And of course, it, then it, it just invites even worse criticism. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I'm conscious I've kept you for a long time. I, I've just got the last couple of uh, questions. They're both very similar. Uh, something that I know that the listeners to this podcast enjoy is, um, is hearing advice. And I wondered if, if you could... If you were to offer sort of two pieces of advice, perhaps one in terms of, you know, you might have already shared it because there's been a lot of takeaway from this already. But, you know, um, in terms of how you have gone, had such a long career. And secondly, um, for somebody who's perhaps writing at home or mixing at home, a mix engineer, something perhaps a bit more technical that might, you know, that you think is important in the, in the process of mixing. Right. Uh, I would say, um, yeah, this is something that I have been asked before. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, um, the, the monitoring, I, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't listen too loud for sure and not too quiet either. It has to be that kind of comfortable middle ground because mm -hmm. there's lots of arguments in terms of mid-range and highs and lows balance that are affected by the monitoring level. So choose a, a mixing level and then never change it. Don't keep on turning it up and down, mm -hmm. you know, but go and do not, um, oh, I've just gone, got distracted, just got, uh, don't really try not to spend uh, too long on any given mix mm. um, because it, it, it may take you a bit of time to get the routing done and, and just get all the logistics of it, especially if you're doing stamps. But even if you're just doing a stereo mix, get all the routing done, then take a break or even a day and come back to it fresh. And really, if it doesn't, if you don't feel that it's coming together um, in a reasonable amount of time, I mean, mixes that go on for, you know, hours and hours or even days, uh, really, I, I, if I'm doing something like that and it's taking too long, I just put it away and come back to it mm -hmm. and then start from scratch because why didn't this come together in half an hour? And, um, and then I, I don't know whether all people can do this, but, you know, it'll come to suddenly. Um, there, there was a great story from a, a guy called Danny Saber Mm -hmm. He never, uh, who's doing punk rock and he, um, he was once asked, you know, you never have the artists come to the mix and you never listen to anybody else's opinion. It's just you and your own. He said, how do you know when a mix is finished? And Danny Saver said, well, when I get bored of listening to it, it's finished. <laughs> um, which is kind of like a, strange answer but every now and then it kind of comes back that it's not that you're bored with it it's that 
you think, well, that that is probably okay. You know, I can't, <laughs> you know, I can't think of anything else. And then the the way to know for sure is to come back to it a few hours or a few days later, and you're you will immediately know whether it's finished or not. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I wouldn't listen um, for anything too long um or too loud or too quiet <laughs> um what else there was another another point uh, just about no, i think those if i remember it i'll come back to it <laughs> uh, so then in terms of of uh you know something perhaps that um, you know, do you have a piece of advice that you were you were maybe given, or or you would pass on in terms of having a, a sustainable career in in the music industry? Um, well, the the first piece of advice is impossible because you really do need to be lucky. <laughs> you really, I mean, there's no getting around it, and it's very. It's a tough thing to say, but if you're not lucky, if I wasn't lucky, then none of this could have happened. Um, but I, but being more practical, uh, I think that you always, whatever it is, whatever the the people you're working with or the music is, you have to enjoy it, even if you're only enjoying it temporarily, even if three months later you can say oh i'm so glad that's over i don't ever want to do it again but as long as you actually enjoy it at the moment because you can't do this either technically or creatively if you're not having fun with it um and i think that my own personal thing is this whole thing of dodging around different genres and things uh helped sustain that because you certainly can't do it for this long just doing the same thing all yeah the time. sustained your sustained your passion for it and i suppose yes. yeah. um, if you're passionate about something you can you can comfortably work hard at it um and you know uh, that's what gets you the gets the results is you know the willingness to spend time and, and put the effort in i mean by all accounts you put a huge amount of effort into everything that you do so you know having passion for something is clearly yeah. really important thank you <laughs> <laughs> um okay just one one final final uh thing i just wanted to end on is a a story that i would if, if you wouldn't mind i'd love to hear it is it about um, the time that Paul McCartney asked you what his what your favourite album is. <laughs> yeah, this is. Um, I think it was. Yeah, it was on the middle of the Abbey Road album, and it was very late, maybe two or three in the morning, and I was sitting by the tape machine, uh, probably um, looking fed up, and because there was a lot of waiting, a lot of late nights, and Paul came over just to a little chit chat. And say, so what's your your favourite album? I I don't know whether he was expecting me to say Sergeant Pepper or Revolver or Rubber Soul or what. Um, And, you know, as what was I then? Um, 18, as an 18 year old, and you just, you know, out of the mouths of babes, (laughs) uh, just said Pet Sound. which really was my favorite album. Yeah. And uh, before I got the job at EMI, my two albums before I went for the interview, that I was constantly playing with Pet Sounds and Sgt. Pepper. Mm. And here I was with one of the writers and artists of Sgt. Pepper and actually faced with the prospect <laughs> of saying Sergeant Pepper, Paul, it's wonderful. I actually said Pet Sound. <laughs> um, it was, I mean, it was a pretty, looking back and being honest, it was a pretty close call. And who knows why I actually said that. <laughs> I mean, it, it wouldn't have been a story if you'd have said Sergeant Peppers. So, that, I mean, no, that's just brilliant. Uh, but, 
But the, the, the other thing was, it, which I didn't know uh, until he, I said it, is that it was actually one of his favorite albums of, of all time as well. Uh. And was a great, you know, there was this whole rivalry between him and uh, were the Beatles and um, Brian Wilson. Um, Presumably he, my, oh, he must have taken it regret, well. Yeah. My one regret, if I have a regret, is that <clears throat> after these years living in Los Angeles, I've not yet had the opportunity to tell that story to Brian Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a, there's still time. <laughs> Maybe, who knows? <laughs> I've had so much fun speaking to you. Thank you so much. Um, you know, I, I could feel like I could talk to you for, for hours more because, I mean, the amount of albums that you've worked on that I'd, I'd love to know in, intimate details on is, is unbelievable. But yeah, I, I've... I've spoke. I've, I've taken too much of your time. I'm sure you've got a, a thousand things to work on. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. It's been a, a, a great pleasure meeting you and talking to you. So there we have it, John Curlander. And as usual, I hope that you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Uh, he's an absolutely lovely chap, and I. Uh, can't believe I got to speak to someone who's got Grammy Awards. I mean, three. Has he got three Grammy Awards? Yes. Crazy. Right. Anyway, so next week, next week, and I often say next week, and I actually mean in two weeks, but this time I actually do mean next week. I'm not getting it wrong. I'm speaking with Jack Cassidy from Jefferson Airplane, which is an unbelievable interview. I mean, as is everybody who seems to be quite high up in the industry, Jack is an enormously lovely guy and so generous with his stories. And I mean, he's played Woodstock. He's done an unbelievable amount of stuff. And uh, it was just a really, really special interview. So I cannot wait to share that with you. And that will be coming next Tuesday. So have a great week. Um, Don't forget, if you want to buy a mug, visit my website, allyouneedisdrums.com, and you can get in touch with me through that website, or you can email me, joe, at allyouneedisdrums.com. That just leaves me to say a big thank you to you guys for all listening and supporting this podcast, and also to my good friend Joe Kane for the intro and outro music, and my good friend David Henshaw for the artwork he supplies every week now. Um, So yes, have a great week, and I will speak to you next Tuesday. Goodbye! (laughs) 